Welcome, everyone, to episode 80 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I just want to say thank you to everyone out there for listening. It feels like I just started this podcast last week, and here we are on episode 80. Thank you to everyone that's been here since day one, and to those of you that this is your first episode, thank you. I hope that you enjoy the stories and that you keep coming back for more. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This first story is a little graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Rodney James Alcala was an American serial killer and sex offender who died while on death row in California. He was sentenced to death for five murders committed in the state between 1977 and 1979 and received an additional sentence of 25 years to life after pleading guilty to two homicides committed in New York in 1971 and 1977. While he has been conclusively linked to eight murders, Alcala's true number of victims remains unknown and could be much higher. Authorities believe the actual number is as high as 130. Alcala compiled a collection of more than 1,000 photographs of women, teenage girls, and boys many in sexually explicit poses. In 2016, he was charged with the 1977 murder of a woman identified in one of his photos. Alcala is known to have assaulted one other photographic subject, and police have speculated that others could be rape or murder victims as well. Prosecutors have said that Alcala, quote, toyed with his victims, strangling them until they lost consciousness then waiting until they revived, sometimes repeating this process several times before finally killing them. One police detective described Alcala as a killing machine, and others have compared him to Ted Bundy. Alcala is often referred to as the dating game killer because of his 1978 appearance on the television show The Dating Game in the midst of his murder spree. Rodney Alcala was born in San Antonio, Texas, the third of four children born to a Mexican-American couple, Raul Alcala Bucor and Ana Marie Maria Gutierrez. In 1951, Alcala's father moved the family to Mexico, then abandoned them three years later. In 1954, when Alcala was 11 years old, his mother moved him and his two sisters to suburban Los Angeles. 
Alcala was an academically gifted student who was reasonably popular amongst his peers and was supported by his family. He attended various private schools during his youth before graduating from Montebello High School. He was on the yearbook planning committee and the track and cross-country teams. In 1961, at 17, he joined the United States Army to become a paratrooper and served as a clerk. During his time in the Army, he was noted by his commanding officer as being manipulative and vindictive, as well as being an individual who frequently disobeyed orders and resisted authority figures. Alcala was disciplined on several occasions for assaulting young women. In 1964, after what was described as a nervous breakdown, during which he went AWOL and hitchhiked from Fort Bragg to his mother's house, he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and was estimated to have an intelligence quotient of 135 by a military psychiatrist and discharged on medical grounds. Other diagnoses later proposed by various psychiatric experts at his trials included narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and malignant narcissism with psychopathy and sexual sadism. After leaving the army, he graduated from the UCLA School of Fine Arts and later studied film under Roman Polanski at New York University. After his death in 2021, 68-year-old Morgan Rowan contacted retired LAPD detective Steve Hodel, one of the original investigators on the Shapiro case, and described being attacked by Alcala when she was 16 in 1968. Rowan's claims, which were corroborated and confirmed by law enforcement after her admissions came to light, were that while she was living in Hollywood in July of 68, she was approached by Alcala who called himself Rod at a teen nightclub on Sunset Strip and got into his car believing that she was going to an IHOP restaurant. Instead, Alcala drove to his apartment a few blocks away where he said that he was having a party. Shortly after they arrived, Alcala dragged Rowan into his bedroom and barred the door. He then beat and raped her. Rowan was then rescued by friends and acquaintances who broke into the room through a window. Alcala fled, and Rowan was pulled from the apartment by her friends. She did not report the incident to authorities out of concern for what her family would think. Alcala committed his second known crime on September 25, 1968, when a passing motorist and eyewitnesses Donald Hines in Los Angeles called police after watching him lure an 8-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro into his Hollywood apartment. Shapiro, who was riding at the West, residing at the West Hollywood Hotel, Chateau Marimont, with her family, was approached by Alcala on her way to school when he pulled up beside her in a car and asked if she needed a ride. At first, Tally refused, but when she heard him say that he knew her parents, she got into the car. Alcala then took her to his apartment, where he told her he wanted to show her a picture. When the police arrived, Shapiro was found alive, having been raped and beaten with a steel bar, but Alcala had fled. Shapiro was in a coma for 32 days and spent months in recovery. Tally's parents relocated the entire family to Puerto v 
Vallarta, Mexico. Tally currently works for Amtrak. On February 14, 1979, according to later trial testimony, Alcala picked up 15-year-old hitchhiker Monique Hoyt in Riverside County. He drove Hoyt to his apartment, where they had sex there with her permission. When they traveled to a secluded mountainous area near Banning, California, in the morning, where Alcala took photos of her in her underwear, as well as pictures of the two of them engaging in sexual intercourse. He then tied her up, gagged her with a t-shirt, beat, raped, sodomized, and bludgeoned Hoyt in the head with a rock. Hoyt managed to gain Alcala's trust by being as friendly as possible, and he agreed to drive her back to Riverside. Hoyt then escaped when he went into a gas station bathroom. She made a police report about the rape and kidnapping, but Alcala's mother posted his bail. To avoid the resulting arrest warrant for the kidnapping and rape of Shapiro, Alcala left the state and enrolled in the New York University Film School using the name John Berger. In 1971, he obtained a counseling job at the New Hampshire Arts Camp for Children using a slightly different alias, John Berger. During this time, Alcala began to work for the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, and at Blue Cross, Alcala worked in an office with serial killer Richard Cottingham. Neither man has claimed to have been aware of the other, nor is there any evidence they were familiar with each other prior to their respective arrests. Cor Corlina Michael Criley, a 23-year-old TWA flight attendant, was found raped and murdered in her Manhattan apartment on June 12, 1971. Alcala had strangled her with her own nylon stockings, leaving her dead in her apartment. It is believed that Criley met Alcala as she moved into her new apartment and that she might have accepted Alcala's help in moving some furniture. Her murder remained unsolved until 2011. The FBI added Alcala to its list of 10 most wanted fugitives in early 1971. A few months later, two children attending the arts camp noticed his photo on an FBI poster at the post office. Alcala was arrested and extradited to California. By then, Shapiro's parents had relocated their entire family to Mexico and refused to allow her to testify at Alcala's trial. Since the authorities were unwilling to charge him with rape and attempted murder without their primary witness, Alcala was convicted of child molestation and sentenced to three years. He was paroled in 1974 after 17 months. Less than two months after his release, he was rearrested for assaulting a 13-year-old girl identified in court records as Julie J., who had accepted what she thought would be a ride to school. Alcala was again paroled in 1976 after serving two years. After his second release in 1977, his Los Angeles parole officer took the unusual step of permitting a repeat offender and known flight risk to travel to New York City. NYPD cold case investigators now believe that a week after arriving in Manhattan, Alcala killed Ellen Jane Hoover, 23-year-old daughter of Herman Hoover, the owner of the popular Hollywood nightclub, Zeros, and goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. She was last seen in her apartment on July 15, 1977. 
Her date book showed that she had an appointment to meet with one John Berger that same day. Later that year, a trip to the FBI was made about how Akala had been arrested by the police a few years previously for the Tally Shapiro case in New Hampshire while working as a drama camp counselor using the alias John Berger. The FBI questioned Alcala in Los Angeles. He admitting, admitted knowing Hoover, but investigators could not arrest him since they had not found her body. Hoover's remains were eventually discovered buried under heavy rocks on a hillside overlooking the Hudson River, about a half a mile west of the Phelps Memorial Hospital in North Terrytown. In 1978, Alcala worked briefly at the Los Angeles Times as a typesetter. He was interviewed by members of the Hillside Strangler Task Force as part of their investigation of known sex offenders. Although Alcala was ruled out as the Hillside Strangler, he was arrested and served a brief sentence for marijuana possession. During this period, Alcala convinced hundreds of young men and women that he was a professional fashion photographer and photographed them for his portfolio. A Times co-worker later recalled that Alcala shared his photos with workmates. I thought it was weird, but I was young. I didn't know anything, she said. When I asked why he took the photos, he said their moms asked him to. I remember the girls were naked. He said he was a professional. So in my mind, I was being a model for him, said a woman who allowed Alcala to photograph her in 1979. The portfolio also included spread after spread of naked teenage boys. She said most of the photos are sexually explicit, and most of the subjects remain unidentified. Police fear that some of the subjects may be additional cold case victims. In 1978, Alcala was a contestant on the popular game show, The Dating Game. Host Jim Lange in introduced him as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. A fellow Bachelor contestant later described Alcala as a, quote, very strange guy with bizarre opinions. Alcala won the competition and a date with the episode's bachelorette, Cheryl Bradshaw, who subsequently refused to go out with him because she found him creepy. Criminal profiler Pat Brown, noting that Alcala killed at least three women after his dating game appearance, speculated that this rejection might have been an exacerbating factor. One wonders what this did in his mind, Brown said. That is something he would not take too well. Psychopaths don't understand the rejection. They think that something is wrong with that girl. She played me. She played hard to get. She wanted to live. Jill Terry Barcom, an 18-year-old teenage girl from Oneida, New York, was murdered by Alcala on November 9, 1977 in Los Angeles. Barcom had been seen in Southern California for about three weeks prior when her body was found on a dirt path near Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. Barcombe was found in a knee-to-chest position and naked from the waist down. There were signs of sexual assault and she had been strangled with a pair of blue rope ties and beaten. 
She also had three bite marks on her right breast. Originally, the authorities thought that Barcolm had been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. However, her case was ultimately decided by authorities to have been unrelated after the arrest of perpetrators Kenneth Bonacci and Angelo Bueno. Neither men confessed or were ever convicted of her murder. On December 16, 1977, 27-year-old Georgia Marie Wixton, a nurse, was discovered dead in her Malibu, California apartment. She was last seen when she drove another nurse, Barbara Gale, home from a bar. When she did not show up for work the next day, Gale and their co-workers reported her missing. Police arrive at Wickstead's apartment to find signs of forced entry. Wickstead was posed naked on her bedroom floor, strangled with her nylons. She had been sexually assaulted and her skull had been bashed in, apparently with a nearby hammer, and her genitals had been mutilated. Prosecutors used DNA evidence and a handprint found at the scene to convict Alcala. On June 24, 1978, Charlotte Lee Lamb, a legal secretary from Santa Monica, was found dead in the laundry room of the apartment complex where she was living in El Guengo. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled with a shoelace, and she was posed with her hands behind her back. DNA at the scene would match that of Alcala, and DNA on a pair of earrings found in his storage locker after Samoa's murder would eventually prove to match Lamb's DNA. On June 13, 1979, Jill Marie, a computer key punch operator, left work early to go to a baseball game. When she did not make it to work the following morning, the police went to her Burbank, California apartment to investigate. They found signs of forced entry, and she was dead, naked on her bathroom floor. She was posed with pillows under her shoulders, and she had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled. Her killer cut himself crawling through a window. Blood evidence would later identify Alcala as the perpetrator. Jill's friend, Catherine Bryan, testified that she and Jill had met Alcala at a club several times before. Robin Christine Samosi, a 12-year-old girl from Huntington Beach, disappeared as she rode a borrowed bicycle from her Huntington Beach home to her ballet class on June 20, 1979. Her decomposing body was found 12 days later in the Los Angeles foothills, dumped off Santa Anita Canyon Road. She had been beaten, raped, and stabbed with a knife. Robin's friends told the police that a stranger had approached them on the beach, asking to take their pictures. Detectives circulated a sketch of the photographer, and Alcala's parole officer recognized him. During a search of Alcala's mother's house in Monterey Park, police found a rental receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. Inside the locker, they found Samosa's earrings. Alcala was arrested in July 1979 and held without bail. In 1980, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for Samosa's murder, but the verdict was overturned by the California Supreme Court because jurors had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes. In 1986, after a second trial virtually identical to the first, except for omission of the prior criminal record testimony, 
he was again convicted and sentenced to death. In 2001, a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel nullified the second conviction, in part because a witness was not allowed to support Alcala's contention that the park ranger who found Samosa's body had been hypnotized by police investigators. While preparing their third prosecution in 2003, Orange County, California investigators learned that Alcala's DNA sampled under a new state law over his objections matched semen left at the, at the rape-murder scenes of two women in Los Angeles. Additional evidence, including another cold case DNA, DNA match in 2004, led to Alcala's indictment for the murders of four additional women. Jill Barcom, 18, a New York runaway found rolled up like a ball in a Los Angeles ravine in 1977 and originally thought to have been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Georgia Wickstead, 27, bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. Charlotte Lamb, 31, raped, strangled, and left in the laundry room of her apartment complex. And Jill Pardonew, 21, killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. All of the bodies were found posed in carefully chosen positions. Another pair of earrings found in Alcala's Seattle storage locker had residue that matched Lamb's DNA. During his incarceration between the second and third trials, Alcala wrote and self-published a book, You the Jury, in which he claimed innocence in the Samosa case and suggested a different suspect. He also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for a slip-and-fall incident and for refusing to provide him a low-fat diet. In 2003, prosecutors entered a motion to join the Samosas charges with those of the four newly discovered victims. Alcala's attorneys contested it. As one of them explained, if you're a juror and you hear one murder case, you may be able to have reasonable doubt, but it's very hard to say you have reasonable doubt on all five, especially when four of the five aren't alleged by eyewitnesses, but are proven by DNA matches. In 2006, the California Supreme Court ruled in the prosecution's favor, and in February 2010, Alcala stood trial on the five joint charges. For the third trial, Alcala elected to act as his own attorney. He took the stand in his own defense and for five hours played the roles of both interrogator and witness, asking himself questions and addressing himself as Mr. Alcala in a deeper than normal voice, and then answering them. During this self-questioning and answering session, he told jurors, often in rambling monotone, that he was at Knott's Berry Farm applying for a job as a photographer at the time the Samosa was kidnapped. He showed the jury a portion of his 1978 appearance on the dating game in an attempt to prove that the earrings found in his Seattle locker were his, not Samosa's. Jed Mills, the actor who competed against Alcala on the show, told a report, reporter that earrings were not yet a socially acceptable accoutrement for men in 1978. I had never seen a man with an earring in his ear, he said. I would have noticed that on him. Alcala made no significant attempt to dispute the four added charges, 
other than to assert that he could not remember killing any of the women. As part of his closing argument, he played Arlo Guthrie's song, Alice's Restaurant, in which the protagonist tells the psychiatrist that he wants to kill. After less than two days' deliberation, the jury convic convicted him on all five counts of first-degree murder. A surprise witness during the penalty, f penalty phase of the trial was Tally Shapiro. Richard Rappaport, a psychiatrist paid by Alcala and the only defense witness, testified that borderline personality disorder could explain Alcala's claims that he had no memory of committing the murders. The prosecutor argued that Alcala was a sexual predator who knew what he was doing was wrong and didn't care. In March 2010, Alcala was sentenced to death for a third time. After his 2010 conviction, New York authorities announced that they would no longer pursue Alcala because of his status as a convict awaiting execution. Nevertheless, in January 2011, a Manhattan grand jury indicted him for the murders of Cornelia Criley, the TWA flight attendant, and Ellen Hoover, the Sierra Harris, in 1971 and 1977, respectively. In June 2012, he was extradited to New York, where he initially entered not guilty pleas on both counts. In December 2012, he changed both pleas to guilty, citing a desire to return to California to pursue appeals of his death penalty conviction. On January 7, 2013, a Manhattan judge sentenced Alcala to an additional 25 years to life. The death penalty has not been an option in New York State since 2007. Alcala died of unspecified natural causes in Coracon, California on July 24, 2021 at the age of 77. Our next and final story is a two-parter that I'm going to read as one. It comes from YourGhostStories.com, and it's called Disturbances Since Childhood. I guess to understand this, you need a little bit of background information. I'm a 20-year-old Christian married woman. I'm married to a Muslim man and am completely happy and healthy, but for a few minor things in my life. My mother has had several paranormal experiences, as have I. My grandmother is a sensitive, and so is my husband, though he is Muslim and has different takes on the paranormal than I do, which tend to lead towards jinns and creatures like that. I just feel that I get it in more intense doses than those around me who know about it. When my mom was 16, she became a saintness and dabbled in dark magic. When she had me at 30 years old, she renounced her ways and became Christian as well. But we both feel that her actions may have opened me up from a young age to the world of the supernatural. She told me that as a young child, I would sit in a dark hallway and babble in my baby talk to someone much taller than me, very tall. We were living in Missoula, Montana at the time. She said that I would cry sometimes or scream. Others, I would just laugh. 
My earliest ex earliest experience I can remember at five is more like a half dream, half memory. I used to get freaked out about having to go past the dark pantry room to get to my bedroom or the bathroom. We lived in a trailer at the time. I would dart past the room as fast as possible. It felt wrong to me. Upon running past it one day, I distinctly remember not running past it, but being drawn into it, and that I was somehow sitting inside that room, but not on the floor, sort of suspended. Some big thing was holding me like a baby. I can't remember correctly, but whatever it was was scaring me. My mom heard me crying and came in, turning on the light where I fell down from the middle of the air with a gash on my cheek. I, to this day, have a long, thin scar on my cheek, exactly where the doctors had to stitch me up. Whether it was from the fall or from the entity, I may never know. Strangely, there had not been any bruising around the wound site, just like a knife had slashed my flesh, rather than a quick bashing from the floor. But the pantry was very empty, nothing on the floor for me to cut myself on, and Mom later admitted to seeing me fall from the middle of the air, not anywhere near a shelf or leaping from a counter. After further investigation and prying into my mother's past, I found that the house we lived in had been the same house she had started to worship the devil in at a young age. In her childhood home and having nowhere to go, she moved back in as her father had given it to her to rent. But those weren't the only things to happen in that house. And the Shadow Man, as I call him, even though I remember him being more substance than shadow, and starkly white as well, as impossibly tall even for a male. He sometimes visits me in my dreams even to this day. And then at other times he disappears, only to reappear when I am stressed. I like to look at things scientifically at first, before succumbing to my baser fear of the unknown. I like to think that he only manifests when my defenses are weak, or when I have immense stress or anger around me in my life. I do not ask Jesus to defend me, but God because my belief system is slightly different than the average Christian, in that I ask God's help rather than Jesus, and that won't change. I am dealing with being attracted to Islam and considering conversion but also dealing with 20 years of church-going and baptisms, I am in between right now. Because of these things, and many others which I hope to submit slowly in my time here as a member, I have learned a few things about myself and the sensitivities my mind has. I have this thing where I can walk into a house and feel either comfortable or uncomfortable in it, to tell whether I am safe there or not. It isn't as if I like it or not, but more like if the house has a dark cast to it, both physically and, what's a word, almost spiritually, even though homes don't have a spirit. I have tested this theory several times. My parents take me with them whenever they move to a new house, because my feelings have never been wrong. Once, when I was 15, my mom and dad wanted to move into a really beautiful country house. All white and pristine, very old too. We loved it. We asked about its history, and it seemed clean enough as the owner didn't hesitate in stating it was fine. But when we first set tennis shoed feet in there, I balked like a donkey. 
Something about the stairs reminded me of my dreams from my childhood, upon where I would be chased about the house and murdered up in the bedroom that was mine. I didn't say anything, though, not wanting to pass up such a great deal, but when I saw the room at the top floor that Mom and Dad wanted me to have, it was so identical to my dream, I demanded that we leave then and there. Rushing down the stairs, I tripped down them, breaking my ankle. I forced myself to believe that I tripped out of my hurry to get out of there, and I still don't like to try and remember how I fell. It's better to assume the natural than the supernatural. After doing my own research in newspapers and on the internet, I found out that a little girl had been molested and then murdered by her stepdad, smothered to death exactly where in my dream I was killed in, the bedroom. I don't know why I had those dreams, but I guess something was warning me not to move there, or something bad would happen. Thank God we didn't move in. Two weeks later, a different family moved in after we viewed it. Their daughter, a friend and classmate of mine, complained of terrible scratching and squeaking sounds in her bedroom. Yes, the one that I was supposed to have. Her dad was acting weird and complaining about someone pulling the covers off his bed, slamming doors, and the sound of footsteps around the bed. Jessica and her family moved after a year without incident, but something in me told me not to go there. Maybe it was okay for her and her family, but I feel that if I was warned about it at the tender age of seven or so when the dream started, that I should heed the warning and not move there. As I have stated, I remember my first experience at the age of five. I had been plagued for years by terrible dreams, but not exactly what we, you would call night terrors, as I was never taken to a doctor, nor did I ever scream in my sleep. They were so vivid, however, that they had to be real to some degree. When I was around six or seven years old, my little brother was around two or three, and we shared a bedroom and a little trailer. These dreams would go on for weeks, stop abruptly, and then resume. At the time, my mom and father were going through a custody battle over me, and the house was saturated with problems as she had taken to drinking excessively, which has always brought out bad results. These dreams would always start off with me wandering in the house, or playing by myself, and then all of a sudden, I would get a very heavy pressing feeling all over my body, freezing me to the ground in total and utter terror. Upon the heavy feelings, darkness would descend, bleeding out any and all light around me, suffocating me. I remember that in these dreams, I would force myself to turn around and stare the main cloud in the non-existent face, screaming at it and then singing church songs until my voice would go raw. The louder I sang, the quick quicker it retreated. The sad part, however, would be that these dreams would happen every night for weeks, and I couldn't stand to go to bed. I always made it go away, but each time I did, it got more and more difficult to the point that I would be exhausted when I woke up. Sleeping with the lights on didn't help either. I also remember that for years, if I slept on my back, it felt like someone was digging his or her fingernails into my back, trying to skewer me in my sleep. I tried to find out what it was, but it would go away, and when I turned on the light or moved to my side, 
Mom became increasingly more worried as the years went by, because whatever she was pissing off was taking its revenge out on me. My mother had reverted back to her old ways of drinking, which always seemed to open her up to her dark past of Satanism. Not that she was practicing it, but her drunken stupor would cause accelerated activities. My stepdad was strictly Christian, and mom never led on to what she was doing, but I think he was very scared for her and for me. He had the house blessed and called in priests, but nothing he did make the spinning plants stop or the shattering coffee pots, nor the washcloth floating in front of my face while I took a bath. It was utter hell during those years. Again, I would try my best to not be scared, but come on, what is a young kid to do but not be scared witless? At eight and nine, the dreams vanished. My father was gone, and I was living with my mom and stepdad. Her alcoholism wasn't getting any better, and since the dreams had abated, new things started. It didn't matter where we lived or where we went. We lived in Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and God knows how many several dozen Montana towns. I believe Mom didn't fully cleanse herself of all her demons. If she was upset, things would shatter. Too drunk, things would fly. I wonder if she was the one causing these disturbances. One time, I picked up my playphone. You know the plastic ones? It was ringing in the middle of the night. But the only way to make that noise when you is when you press a button yourself. My brother was asleep in the next room, but for some reason I just picked it up and answered. There was static and a garbled voice. My grandmother had died just a few days before, and I think to this day that she was trying to say goodbye. Sometimes I wonder what it is that I have. Am I sensitive? I don't know. Evidence states that I am. But there are so many unexplained things, and as such, I wonder if it is wise to investigate myself and what I can do if I am aware. There have been a few experiences that have been good for me, so I thought it best to ignore most things, but even ignorance is not bliss. I cannot keep everything at bay, and it is exhausting to try to do so. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I do hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And also, as of yesterday, the podcast is now officially available on Amazon Music and Audible if you would like to listen to it in one of those areas. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to reach my goal of 500 subscribers. And remember, once I hit 500 subscribers, I will release a YouTube-exclusive bonus episode. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support us by joining on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. We just had a new bonus episode launched this past Sunday. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.